Welcome to Thoughts in the Market. I'm Andrew Sheets, Chief Cross-Asset Strategist for Morgan Stanley Research. And I'm Matthew Harrison, Equity Research Analyst covering biotechnology. And on part one of this podcast, we'll be discussing the outlook for the Delta variant and the impact on markets and the economy. It's Thursday, July 29th at 4 p.m. in London. And it's 11 a.m. in New York. So, Matt, the last time we spoke, concern over the COVID-19 Delta variant was largely centered on areas outside the U.S., particularly Europe and Asia. But now we're seeing spikes in a number of U.S. states and a lot of conversation over the unvaccinated. Before we get into some of your forecasts and, and the outlook, you know, maybe just a good way to step back is to think of a scenario where if there weren't vaccinations, how serious does the Delta variant look relative to prior outbreaks? How can we put it in context? Thanks for the question, Andrew. I think there are two factors which are important to consider. The first is the rate of rise of new cases. It is much steeper with Delta than with previous infection waves. You were able to see that in how quickly uh, new cases evolved in India in its wave, in the UK in its wave, and you're seeing the same thing in the U.S., though that slope is a bit more shallow until you remove the effect of vaccination and then it becomes quite parabolic. The second thing is obviously the total number of cases uh, that you're seeing. And here, that's where vaccines are having a, a more significant impact. So if you were to take a state like Florida, um, it looks like it's about half its prior peak in terms of total number of cases. But if you remove the impact from vaccines, it's actually at or above the prior peak in total cases. And you see that across other states in the U.S. as well. So, Matt, you just mentioned that Delta is looking more infectious. It's spreading faster than prior versions of the virus. Is that just the nature of all variants? And, you know, given the history of of other viral outbreaks, kind of what tends to be the trend of variants over time? How do they tend to evolve? And are there common patterns in this evolution? The point I would make is the natural evolutionary trend of a virus is to become more infectious and less virulent. If you put yourself in the head of the virus, what they want to do is the virus obviously wants to survive. And the way it survives is by infecting a lot of individuals and then having those individuals infect a lot of others. And if you're too virulent, then you can't spread very efficiently. And so the virus tends to learn how to do that. I think what's novel with what's happening here with the Delta variant and SARS-CoV-2 is that Typically, coronaviruses are quite stable, but because this virus has infected a lot of people globally, it's actually made the move towards a more infectious strain probably quicker than we have seen with some other viruses in the past. So more infectious, but maybe less dangerous. Correct. So Matt, I asked you a hypothetical trying to compare kind of apples to apples of what Delta would look like if we didn't have vaccinations, but obviously we do, and they appear to be making a, a very large difference. What do we know about the changing relationship between the number of cases and the number of hospitalizations that vaccines are creating? And what are some of your thoughts about that going forward? Yeah, so I, I believe the the most recent statistic from the CDC is that 97% of the hospitalizations in the U.S. are in unvaccinated people and 99.5% of the deaths in the U.S. are from unvaccinated people. So I think that's a pretty stark statistic on the impact of vaccines. Outside the U.S., there's been a a lot of what I'll call real-world data where companies have followed cohorts of vaccinated individuals over time. And there you do see a diminution of what I'll call vaccine efficacy against mild to moderate disease. 
So for example, there's been recent data published from Pfizer that suggested that after six months, you're looking at sort of instead of a number in the mid 90% for prevention of symptomatic disease, it's, it's in the mid 80%. But prevention against hospitalization and, and severe disease is still in the mid 90% range. And obviously, as you talked about, Andrew, that's the key statistic from a public health standpoint. You know, something we've been talking about in a number of our conversations really over the last year is this idea that, you know, this may be a disease that's endemic. It may just be something that the world has to live with, you know, somewhat like the flu, that it, it can't be eradicated or it's unrealistic to eradicate it. So, Matt, your thoughts around that and, you know, again, maybe going back to some of that data from Pfizer, how important is this distinction between preventing symptomatic cases and preventing the more severe ones? My view would be that this is going to be an, an endemic disease. People are going to learn to have to live with it, though I would hope over time, because uh, coronaviruses tend to mutate a lot less than the flu, that this, you know, over a few year period may start to resemble more like some of the other coronaviruses that make up the vast majority of the common colds than, for example, what we experience with the flu. But that said, I guess there are two other points. So the first is we don't know how long the protection from vaccines last. But I think the good news is that even over the course of six to 12 months, the protection against severe disease and hospitalization continues to look quite strong. The second item is over the course of the next, let's call it six months, but especially as we start to enter the winter season, we should have data from both uh, small molecule drugs, so pills that you could take that may help treat disease when you get it, and then also from newer antibodies, which could also help treat or be given to people that are at high risk. And so I think there's going to be a lot of drugs in sort of the clinician's armamentarium to be able to treat people with disease as well. So even those that may have a breakthrough infection with a vaccine or get disease could be treated and, and outcomes continued to be improved. And then I think the third point here is, and we've talked about this previously, but there are booster shots in development for vaccines. Data that we have now suggests that even just a third dose of the current vaccines is both safe and quite effective in terms of increasing immunity, even against symptomatic disease. And then we have some specialized boosters that work against all of the variants, and in particular, you know, Delta, such that you could even have a very strong response against those. So I think there's a lot available, but to your point, prevention against very severe disease does seem to last. And I think something that, from a public health standpoint, at least, is the most important factor here. So while we're on the topic of variants, I think a concern in the back of a lot of people's mind is that eventually we will get a variant that eludes the vaccines and that maybe some of this progress, some of this hope that is in the market, is in the economy, will be for naught as a new variant comes along. But you know, thinking about the science of that, I was wondering if you could comment on, is there a good precedent for a, a virus evading a previously effective vaccine? And then you know, you do a lot of your work with uh, these mRNA vaccines. This is a new technology. And any thoughts you have on how that technology might impact the chances of a variant uh, fully evading these vaccines? I think what we see from the science is that the mutations that are out there probably represent the broad majority of mutations that exist. And now we're in a situation where it's novel combinations of those mutations, which make up these new variants 
that potentially pose the risk. And typically we've seen one or two mutations that have combined together to make up a variant. And while there are a range of mutations, there's a subset of them that affect what's called the receptor binding domain of the virus. And so if you change that enough, because that's the target of the vaccine, then potentially, right, you could have an evasion of vaccines. Having an idea of the potential for that to happen it is difficult, but I, I don't want to rule it out primarily because we still have high disease spread, which means we still have potential for these new variants to develop. I think the most important thing that I would then say to that is, given the speed of the mRNA technology, we have a fallback position though. So if we were to see something like that happen, the companies can quite quickly adapt and make a new vaccine against that genetic sequence. So while if we had that situation, it, w- it wouldn't be good. I think the companies could get to a point in, let's call it a three to six month time period, where they could deploy effective vaccines against that new novel strain. As always, Matt, thanks for taking the time to talk. Great speaking with you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with part two of my conversation with Matthew Harrison. As a reminder, if you enjoy Thoughts of the Market, please take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. It helps more people find the show. The preceding content is informational only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or a solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances and objectives and may not be suitable for you. 